Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Christina Cummins, is an expert on medical leadership. In this conversation, she explores the idea that it is the lack of effective leadership that leads to many of the most significant problems in healthcare today. Here to share her perspective is Christina Cummins. Christina, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. I was saying to you before we even started, I think this is one of the most important conversations we're going to have this year because the focus is on what goes wrong in healthcare and particularly with regard to the leadership of healthcare. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in this whole world of healthcare leadership? I'm a counselor by training, and I learned very quickly that once you get a license in that realm, you move into leadership roles rather quickly. Mental health, counseling, social service. And in that realm, there is no leadership training. It's very uncommon. And in speaking with my nursing and medical counterparts, they shared with me the same that they may have moved up in these systems rather quickly. They received little to no leadership training aside from watching their mentors do what these individuals aspired to do one day or what they knew they never wanted to do one day. That was the leadership training. I also saw, to be very frank, a system whose primary workforce was women, counselors, social workers, and many of the leaders, men. It never sat right with me, and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why the system that had the boots on the ground being female would have so many male leaders. And over the years, I saw, experienced, and had my my friends and colleagues share their experience with me of not knowing how to do simple leadership tasks, not knowing how to write people up, how to redirect undesirable behavior, how to uh, hire people, how to fire people how to praise people, how to reinforce the behaviors that you wanted, they wanted to see in their staff. They just didn't know the how-tos. And neither did I until I dug in and learned. And I had to do that learning independently. There was no system in place for me to learn. And I dug in and learned because I had a passion for it, but a lot of my colleagues didn't. They left. And therefore, they did not move up the leadership 
organizational ladder, they moved out. And that left less and less women moving up into leadership positions, less people of a variety of diverse backgrounds moving up to leadership positions. I'm still a counselor and I still struggle with burnout. In fact, I'm having a really interesting experience right now as I am coming to you to to this podcast as the expert on burnout. And I have to tell you, I am tired and not quite certain of my effectiveness. And especially as it pertains to this leadership work, feeling a, a little cynical about the prospects of integrating systematic structure to train the workforce with a focus on women, with a focus on diversity. I'm coming to you as an expert in burnout, and I am quite burnt out, to be frank with you. (laughs) Christina, we really need you right now, and we need you because everything you said resonates. It's almost assumed that having a medical degree or a nursing degree is equivalent to having managerial expertise. And that's like saying that a pediatrician could just as easily be a neurosurgeon or a psychiatrist or a public health consultant. Of course, that simply would be laughable in medicine. And yet it isn't laughable that somebody can be a medical director and never had have other than a weekend course in management training, if that. I speak with leaders within hospital systems on a regular basis that, and this is part of what is potentially leading to some of my burnout right now. I speak to leaders in hospital systems on a regular basis that want leadership training, communication training for their physicians. They know that certain teams have turnover rates that are far above average, that are cutting into profits. And they want that leadership training, that communication done in a three-hour workshop. And you do not reverse 10, 20 years worth of ineffective communication styles in three hours. You can make a couple drops in the bucket. You can make the base for change. And creating healthy leadership where people are communicating from a base of inclusion, of creating positive behavior change in their staff, as opposed to behavior change due to anxiety or fear, which in the medical realm is a recipe for disaster. When people are walking on eggshells, 
around the attending, it creates an environment where medical errors are bound to happen. And yet that is the reality that we live in, that burnout, that ineffective leadership is leading to our communities, our patients, not getting the medical care that they deserve, that they show up for. So my mission is to support female leaders in burnout and create more diverse leadership in healthcare and ultimately our clients are really the reason why we need to reduce burnout in leaders and therefore in their teams and you're right this idea that i see it in with psychologists psychiatrists and medical doctors alike that we have these advanced degrees and therefore we know how to lead and it's simply not the case if it wasn't right we wouldn't have the problems that we currently have where patients are increasingly getting a poorer experience or at least we're much more aware that they're getting a poorer experience this may have been happening for a long time but now that we've got social media it is very obvious that things are not always as they should be so if you are a, a manager and a clinician of whatever variety in healthcare first of all how do you engender burnout and what is that experience of burnout like for the person who the unfortunate person who who then has to live with it. Most people that are experiencing burnout do not use that word, are not readily identifying I'm burnt out. They're feeling stressed. They're feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling ineffective. Like what they do isn't making a difference. They're feeling like they don't want to go to work. When we get into what burnout is, we're talking about this feeling of fatigue. People are tired. That's where I'm at right now. You know, I, I'm, I'm feeling tired of having conversations with hospital executives who want me to solve huge burnout problems in three hours. <laughs> now, I know not everyone's like that. Not every hospital executive is like that. But you get to this point when where you feel fatigued and then the 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 second layer of the burnout cake which is the, the worst cake ever by the way is um this feeling of being really ineffective so this is why i limit the number of three-hour workshops I do for hospital systems because I know that it is not actually effective work to do that. So if I do, if I were to do that day in and day out, my goodness, I wouldn't be making a difference. And that's what people really see when you're looking in these very high stress, high burnout realms, people working for, um, the division of 
of child and family services, um, where it's kind of a continuous role, a continuous line of clients that you have to see. There's so much trauma and devastation on the day to day. It feels like all every 40 hour work week, you're not even making a, a drop in the bucket of helping the world, even though they, they very much are. We are all contributing, but it's this feeling of being very ineffective. Coupled with, or the third layer, I should say, is being really negative and feeling really negative feeling very sad about going to work, the situations at work, the people that you work with, both clients, patients, and your peers, supervisors. This horrible combination of the three layers is burnout. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. As you were talking, I was imagining what a good analogy might be, and this might be stretching it, but it's a bit like the First World War, isn't it? So you've got the troops in the trenches dealing with the difficult situation, and you've got the generals eating steak in some faraway place, away from where the action is. Now, it's possible that those generals are also involved at the front line in healthcare, but it is like that in the sense that you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard, you don't feel that your job is anything other than to man the trenches and point your weapon over the, over the top at what appears to be the enemy. And it goes day in, day out, day in, day out, until as you say, fatigue sets in and almost a, a sense of hopelessness overwhelms you until you can't think creatively anymore. The doctors are often on the front lines. I would venture to say in that analogy, the generals are the executives that often don't have medical degrees that are not well versed in what it is to be with patients day in and day out and have all of the what seems at times endless documentation responsibilities holding that balance of patient care documentation and self-care all while managing other people is a huge task and there's movements to create more flexibility and ease of use in their documentation medical documentation responsibilities because we know the evidence says that that's what, what hospital systems, medical systems need. The evidence says there are great ways to reduce burnout and increase leadership skills 
reducing turnover and increasing profitability. And yet, so many of the systems are now putting these researched evidence-based protocols in place. So not only are the generals not actually soldiers, but the systems that are in place are not likely to win the war either. So we're losing the war, the generals aren't soldiers, and the troops at the front line just turn up and point their weapons in vaguely the right direction, often missing the target. Doing the best they absolutely can with what they have. Then along comes Christina with some insight and a view from the entire battlefield and what's going on. From your perspective, where do we start to get this sorted out? We're so lucky to live in the age of access to information and peer-reviewed literature. There are three primary pillars that we look at when in when we are reducing burnout and increasing leadership skills. Pillar one is insight and emotional intelligence. This does not come easy. It does not come quick. And it can come and can be fostered. Some people don't need it fostered at all. And others need a bit of work in creating and cultivating their emotional intelligence and learning how to speak to their team in a way that their team is not going to be fearful of them. It's going to respond to them and be comfortable enough to ask questions. In the medical, social service, mental health realm, your team needs to be comfortable asking you questions. The second pillar is education on leadership. We need to be able to have a shared language and understanding of the basics of leadership, which most of us do not get the privilege to learn in school. I I certainly didn't. And I know very few people outside of those who specifically went to school for degrees in leadership, which is rather rare. We don't have the basic education on leadership. And thirdly is community. Systems need their own community. Leaders need a community to rely on for help with emotional intelligence, accountability, and for bouncing these leadership ideas off of. Leaders are often so siloed within their roles, they can't even identify who they would turn to for support. Who they would turn to to bounce ideas off of or talk about a hard day, a hard choice they had to make. Systems need to have communities in place. 
And that's what we're doing. We're establishing these communities in the systems that are there long after I leave. And that's what actually keeps the burnout down long-term. That it's not just a six-month fix. This is something that, that organizations are going to need on an ongoing basis. And then they can, once that system is in place, then they can enroll those, the new leaders into that system. Again, stopping that cycle of burnout and leaving and increasing the retention rate so that these new and hopefully diverse leaders are staying in the systems and moving up through the organizational ranks. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. It rarely happens in healthcare. What you're describing is a profitable company that actually has low turnover, but people who want to be at work, not waiting for the weekend, not waiting for the two weeks of annual leave. There must be examples of where this is being done and being done well, because in fact, the market decides in the end, doesn't it? And profitability is what drives it. And creativity, those are the companies that are the most creative. It rarely happens in healthcare. There must be examples of this that you've come across. You know where I see this most often? The tech world. While there are examples of this in the medical realm, and I will say particularly in social service, I have seen systems within social service where their leadership reflects, the leadership demographic reflects the population that they serve, which is the ideal in social service, where they've got this down. And when I speak with people, when I'm speaking with the leaders to really understand their struggles within the hospital systems, the barrier over and over again is how do we truly calculate the cost of turnover? And if putting a system in place is profitable, how do we truly define that for our leadership to get executive buy-in? And we, we run up against that barrier over and over again because hospital systems have come to accept these incredibly high rates of turnover and a heterogeneous leadership group as the norm. However, in the tech world, they have not because they want to run the numbers And they want to see in large systems a 1% or 2% drop in turnover 
creates a ripple effect in many ways, including profitability. And they love running those numbers. Hospital systems, however, are more reluctant. Because there's an endless source of labor. Because there are lots and lots of schools, medical schools, that produce yet more substrate for the same thing to happen again and again and again. And if you step away from the role, there are five others vying for the same position and experiencing often the same outcome that you've experienced. I wonder if that's one of the factors involved. I have theories about this. So to be clear, I don't have the evidence to back me up on this. However, when we look at the demographic of hospital leadership, we're often looking at individuals that have been in their roles for 20, 30, 40 years. And they're coming to their their roles, their decision-making process based on the status quo and often unintentionally or unconsciously so. That it just is this way. It's always been like this. The idea of changing, the idea of creating more diversity in leadership seems out of their control. When in fact, it is very much inside their realm of control. It's about stepping out of the comfort zone and challenging this ego of that we were speaking about before. Challenging the ego of we are professionally trained. Therefore, we know what's best in leadership, in hiring practices, in promotional practices. I wonder if part of the solution, long-term solution, is for us to train healthcare professionals to be healthcare professionals, but for a stream of those healthcare professionals to be specifically trained to be leaders in the way that we're describing, in an evidence-based way, in a way that specifically prepares them for leadership, not to be at the front line doing the surgery or prescribing the drugs, but having enough insight, having enough knowledge of those spaces so that they're not coming to it naive about the challenges of clinical practice? I think that training healthcare leaders is a two-phase system that should start in medical school and continue in their real-world practice. It needs to be the theory and the practice. Part of that, we know coaching-based education works. We know that people who have someone that can observe their behaviors and give them feedback 
in real time. We're not talking the six month review. We're talking on a weekly basis can see real growth and development. And a culture shift in doctors, nursing leaders, receiving coaching is starting to take place. And it might be slow to gather up momentum. However, I know of uh, one hospital system in Philadelphia that has integrated uh, nurse leadership coaching into their system. And in speaking with their, their nurse leaders, they're grateful for it. They come away from that with reduced stress. And there's pushback too. Pushback from the, the nurse leaders who have never gotten coaching, but may have been in those positions for some time. So this new generation of nursing leaders being integrated into this coaching norm is a, a wonderful, a beautiful direction that we're moving for those nurse leaders, but also, of course, for the patients being served. The idea that you coach people or you train people to be leaders from the world, from their inception into medicine at medical school. When the rubber hits the road, the medical students observe the leaders who are on the wards. They're meant to be their supervisors or their trainers, whatever happens to be. And they're going to observe behaviors that are the very behaviors that you and I would agree are unhelpful in this situation. But these are very vulnerable people and they are unlikely to challenge those behaviors, number one. And number two, and sadly, many will emulate that behavior and see this as the way it's always done, done as you to, to use that phrase. And I think you're right. That's, that's the correct phrase. This is how it's always been done. This is how it always will be done. And if you do this, you end up in the position that this person is with that prestigious role at that prestigious center of excellence and with the title of director of XYZ. How do we, number, how do we influence that? How do we challenge and influence that? There has been such a disconnect between mental health and medical care and to medical care's detriment. This um, baptism by fire that medical school is, that residency is, is good for no one. Disrupting this system in a big way would take a huge movement. Now, there is no way of taking the stress out of this, okay? You know, we can't make it an easy, carefree experience to become a doctor. It is stressful. There is a lot of pressure. But this added pressure of the aggression, the anger, 
coming from the leaders is why I was talking to a doctor just a few days ago. This is what makes great doctors, diverse doctors that know that it's not okay to be treated like that, leave the field altogether. I was just speaking to an incredibly talented woman of color who left the field altogether because she wasn't going to be treated like that by a white man. And when we, when we really take a step back and look at how white male centered the American medical training system is, you get disgusted <laughs> and you get a little burnt out. How do we disrupt that system in a huge way to train properly for leadership? I don't actually have the right, I don't have the answer to that. And I know that when we start calling out the behavior and when white cisgender men can stop being bystanders, bystanders to the behavior, we're making progress and we're moving in the right direction. You cannot tolerate that behavior. But I just wonder whether quitting is not an option anymore. Because if enough people quit, we leave behind a system that has no checks and balances whatsoever. Well, what we can do is find places where those who are interested in a different way can thrive or get support where they can feel seen and heard and a sense of moving forward in a community. And I just wonder what that might look like. Because for that unfortunate doctor to quit means there is not going to be a change. There's going to be more of the same. Mm -hmm. And it's often um, looked at as she couldn't hack it. So she left instead of there's, there's systematic bias, gender bias and racism, I'm sure in place. And we've got, um, an amazing community of burnt out workers, medical workers from all different fields that are able to come together to have support. And the real mission is that we put these communities in place within the organizations. And that these communities can create their own employee resource groups to change the systems. Just as there are employee resource groups for a variety of minority groups. 
I refuse to accept that there is no hope because I think there has to be hope for one reason only, and that is that medicine, raison d'etre, if you like, the reason we exist is to serve the community, and the community deserves better, patients deserve better, because those patients are our friends, our family, our loved ones, our children, our grandchildren, us, right, us, right? So, not good enough, and it's going to have to change, and there's enough voice around this, there's enough momentum around it, there's enough being said by enough people all around, not just the United States, but around the world, saying, we want it to be different, and we're getting louder and louder. Not only are we getting louder and louder, we're getting organized. And not only are we getting organized, but we're saying, well, if, you, if, if the game doesn't work, if you, and somebody said to me, if, if, if the game doesn't work, if, you don't, if you're not enjoying the game, upend the board and set up your own game and play your own game and say, we're now going to play by my rules. That is what my organization is doing. We are saying that there was no system in place for leadership training, burnout reduction, creation of this community, all of the factors that reduce burnout and increase leadership skills. We didn't have it. Doctors, nurse leaders don't have it. All types of leaders within social service and medical world did not have it. We have created it and we are doing the research on it to establish that it is effective, that it is effective in reducing burnout, in reducing turnover. We are going to forget what we say. Let's look at the numbers. And that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. And that is, that is taking us one step closer to reducing burnout in the medical field and in women in the medical field, which is really my passion. Christina, you are not alone. We hear you, we see you, we amplify your voice. It's been a joy spending time with you, a great deal of wisdom in all that you've shared. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much.